This teaching comes to you from the team at St Mark's Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. Good evening everyone, uh, my name is Greg and it's great to be here at 5.30. I'm normally at the uh, 10 o'clock service with my wife Amelia and two of my kids, Posey and Arthur. Um, and I knew there was a 5.30 service, but I've seen it in the flesh now, so you know, I'm no longer a doubting Thomas, it actually exists, you're here. And it's great to be uh, able to speak with you this evening um, on this uh, marvellous uh, section of scripture in Exodus chapter 16. Um, so let's pray to the Lord and see if he'll open up God's word for us. Heavenly Father, would you please this evening soften our hearts and minds to receive your provision and to let your word be a lamp to our feet and a light to our paths. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So one of the reasons that people give up on religion is that they prefer science. If you follow the research, you'll know that in the census uh, that was uh, taken in 2016, around about 32% of Australians said now that they no longer or never had had any religion. So they tick the box on the census form that says, I have no religion. And this number's been rising throughout the, uh, the census data as, since the 1950s, really. More and more Australians are willing to say, I have no religion. 32 out of every 100 are willing to say that. Well, a group of researchers here in Sydney called McCrindle Research looked into this 32% who say, I have no religion, to understand what they meant by that. And they discovered that roughly half of them, so 16 out of every 100 Australians, say the reason they have no religion is they prefer science and evidence to faith. They saw those two things as opposed, 16 out of every 100 Australians. And then half of those people, so eight out of every 100 Australians, say that the reason uh, that they don't like religion is that they are strongly repelled by its claims about miracles. They're strongly repelled that religions believe in miracles. So what do we make of those statistics? What do we do with that data? Well, here's my take on it. What I get out of that is that 92 out of every 100 Australians are either positive about miracles or neutral on the topic. So 8 out of 100 are repulsed by it, but that means 92% of Australians either really don't have a view or are positive about the idea that miracles might occur. In fact, they would say that to explain the events that take place in the world, it's probably reasonable sometimes to say it was science, and sometimes to say it was a miracle. Those two things are not in conflict for the vast majority of Australians. An interesting way of looking at it. So in this book of Exodus, which we've been exploring here at St Mark's for some time now, we've been discovering miracle after miracle. You know, it's really a book full of these most incredible interventions of God in the lives of the Israelites. Uh, it's a book that I don't know how much Bible reading you've done. It was great to to hear from uh, Henry and Janice, Janice, Janice yeah, um, about your experience of the Bible and coming to it afresh, because I think books like this are either bizarre or vaguely familiar to most people. They're, they're probably both at the same time. You, you've sort of heard some of the stories in the book of Exodus, even if you've never sat down and read it, but they're, they're odd stories 
to you as a 21st century reader. And so we've been exploring these stories um, as we've come here to church week after week. It might seem like an odd thing to do in 21st century Sydney to sit in the pews here and talk about this ancient literature from the book of Exodus. But I hope tonight I can show you just how profoundly significant and influential it's been for us today. So we've heard about the life of Moses, who was an abandoned baby but grew to be the great leader of Israel. Uh, we've heard of the horrific plagues of judgment on the Egyptian people um, as their pharaoh was persistently a tyrant against them, keeping them in slavery. We've heard about that startling and very seminal event, the Passover, where uh, really the cornerstone of Jewish life, um, celebrating God's judgment passing over those who were believing in him, and a precursor to the Christian uh, concept of Jesus' sacrifice for sins on our behalf, that judgment might pass over us, the event we're going to celebrate at Easter time in just a number of weeks. So here now today we come to Exodus chapter 16 and these incredible events that have taken place in the nation of Israel. So let's put it in our context. They've, the Israelites have escaped from Egypt. They've been led away from their oppressor that's enslaved them for a long period of time. They cross the Red Sea in that miraculous parting of the waters. They, they go through on dry land and then just as miraculously the waters come down in judgment on the Egyptian army behind them. The profound scene of kind of salvation for some, judgment for others. And I don't know if this is the sort of thing you expect when you come to read the Bible afresh, but it really shows you what a kind of profound and dangerous book this is, as it tells you about a God who is willing to save some and judge others, often through the most miraculous of means. Um, but thus far in the story, it's just been miracle on miracle. So I think we might do well tonight just to pause for a moment and contemplate the nature of miracles and see what we make of them here in 21st century Sydney. So I've just got three thoughts for you on miracles, which I'd love to explore later and uh, over supper if you're interested. But three thoughts, I hope they're in a kind of logical progression, so tell me what you think of them later. The first is this, that if you believe there is a God, you already believe in miracles. If you believe there's a God, you already believe in the miraculous because God's existence is miraculous from a human standpoint. Uh, it's not necessarily something you see or experience on a day-to-day -day basis, not something you can explain very well from a natural viewpoint. If you believe there's an all-powerful, unseen God uh, who interacts with the world, then miracles are already not only possible for you but quite plausible, even something you might expect because you already believe in an amazing God capable of creating a world, capable of interacting with the world. That's, that's the first and big miracle. You're already there. And more than half of Australia believes this. I think 68% in that census data have some sort of belief in that kind of God. So if you believe in God, miracles are already in the picture because you believe not only in the ordinary, but also the extraordinary. They're both on view. Secondly, the miracle we're reading about here today could in fact possibly have a potential natural explanation. Quite a few of the Bible's miracles do. There's a, there's a way of looking at them that sort of makes sense in the natural world. The manna that comes from heaven, the bread from heaven, 
could in fact be a substance that was well known in Egypt at this period of time, and I'll talk a bit more about that in a moment. But even so, this event would still have a miraculous dimension to it. God's provision for his people, the timing around the provision, the constant provision, the provision of the right amount of food for people, these still have the whiff of the involvement of God. And so the explanation of the miracle in natural terms doesn't discount God's involvement in the activity. He can use his creation to care for his people. After all, it's his creation. He made it. He can reorder it and order it as he wishes. And he just does this in powerful ways that we experience as miraculous. Um, he can also do it in ways that we've come to think of as normal, which might have been thought of as miraculous in the past. Science, medicine, technology, human endeavour. All of these things belong to God to use as he wishes. If you believe in a God who created the world in the first place, it's his world to order and reorder as he sees best. And sometimes to us that will look miraculous, depending on our standpoint. And then my third point is this, that miracles in the Bible have a meaning. They, they're not just random, they are in a context. And from our perspective in the 21st century, we do very well to think about them this way. What does this miracle say about God's character? What does this miracle say about God's plans? What does this miracle say about the great miracle of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is where the Bible story is headed? How are we to think about these miracles in relation to the person of Jesus? And today we have some really wonderful ways of doing that that we'll come to. So I think you ought to think about biblical miracles in that bigger context of the larger story of what God's trying to do in the world, and then they will make sense to you in a fresh and new way. Okay, so if you fall into that category of people in Australia, most Australians who find miracles at least possible, in fact, maybe you're positive about them, I hope you find tonight fortifying and interesting. If you're in that smaller group who's very suspicious about the miraculous, I hope that at least by putting this miracle in the context of the unfolding Bible story, you might look at it with fresh eyes and see if it makes a new kind of sense to you. And I hope you'll, you'll find a way of distinguishing this miracle here from some of the kind of bogus claims that are made about miraculous leg lengthenings and healings and so forth, because there are plenty of bogus claims made around the world about miracles. Um, and I hope that here you can see that this is different. That in Exodus we have an account of a nation's history that's interpreted as the miraculous intervention of a God they believe in on their behalf. So let's see how that plays out in the chapter ahead of us. You might want to keep your Bible open. I'll refer to a few bits of it here and there. So again, the context is that Israel has left Egypt. They've escaped from slavery. The Egyptians have been judged in the miraculous events of the Red Sea, shaken away, and they've come to their freedom. But their freedom is actually in the desert. But if you go to the end of chapter 15, just before our reading in verse 27, they're actually at a bit of an oasis in the desert. They've come to Elim, verse 27, where there are 12 springs and 70 palm trees. It's kind of a bit of an oasis there in the desert. And they're camping near the water, almost like a summer holiday. So, yes, they're in the desert, but God has provided already this kind of natural oasis for them from which they can do their reflecting. But how do they reflect? They instantly grumble and complain. And the passages full of their grumblings, actually, full of the Israeli grumblings. 
Um, it's a bit of a stereotype here of the grumbling people of God, isn't it? Um, you know, the glass is half empty, they're regretful, they're saying, oh, we wish we'd stayed in Egypt, at least we had flesh pots there. That's just kind of, you know, barbecue. They had meat, they were able to eat, they could enjoy their food, they could relax even though it's slavery. Um, but, you know, now we're in the desert, we're all going to die. There's just a sense of complaining about everything, um, even though God has provided for them. And if you can forgive me a little bit of kind of interpreting of the tone of verse 4 there, the Lord says to Moses, rolling his eyes in exasperation, fine, if you're going to complain, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to drop down from heaven food on you guys so you can see that I really do provide. It's going to be that obvious to you as it descends from heaven onto your feet and you have exactly what you need. There's a sort of possible sense of exasperation there that the God who's rescued them from slavery through the Red Sea is now being doubted as if he wouldn't provide for his people in the desert. And he instructs them very clearly here. He says, look, I'm going to feed you every day. I want you to go out six days of the week and get your food. On the sixth day, though, gather twice as much, bake it up, keep it for the seventh, because I don't want you to go shopping on the seventh. That's special. We need to talk about that a bit more later. Most of them manage to obey that, but of course some of them, they just have to go shopping on the 7th and see what happens. I think it's also worth noting here that the way God's providing could sound to us a little bit frugal, a little bit kind of bread and water, it's like prison food, that kind of thing. It's not that at all. The kind of food that's provided here is actually more like luxury dining. The bread, the manna, uh, it says later in the passage, it tastes like coriander seeds and honey. It's actually more like a kind of artisan sourdough from brasserie bread that they are hooking into here day after day, rather than, you know, sort of wafers that they wouldn't enjoy. And what's more, meat in the evenings. And anyone who likes quail will know it's pretty good food. Sorry to the vegetarians. But delicious quail is provided to them of an evening. So it's not a staple diet. This is actually fine dining that's being provided to them from heaven, in the desert, at their oasis, by the springs. And yet they grumble. They really do seem to struggle to remember the basic belief that their God, who created the world, will provide for them. They're ungrateful, despite their salvation from slavery. They're disobedient, despite their clear instructions they've been given on how to, how to live. And they're incredibly forgetful, despite constant reminders by God like about things like, I want you to work on six days and have a rest on the seventh. So ungrateful, disobedient, forgetful, I think we can relate very easily to their situation. This, is, this really is us, isn't it? When we've received salvation in Christ, we still want more. We complain about our perceived sufferings, despite the generosity God's shown to us. When we've been given clear instructions by God, we still ignore them or willfully break them. That's just us. And we forget over and over what God has told us. In fact, I think that's why it's so important to come to church and to read the Bible, because we just forget during the week what it is that shapes us and our beliefs. Um, we have to be constantly prodded, constantly reminded, and in spite of our whinging, in spite of our disobedience, remember that God provides, he continues to love us in spite of all that. So God provides this food in the wilderness for the wandering Israelites on the way to their homeland. And they do wander for a long time, in fact, 40 years, we are told in the passage. So he continues to provide. But I imagine, like me, you're pretty curious about what this kind of food really is 
that can descend from heaven and look after them? What exactly is manna? And it's a good question because uh, those who speak Hebrew would know that manna actually means, what is it? So when they look at the ground, they say, what is it? They're actually saying manna. But what is this? Manna. No, I asked you, what is it? It's manna. Uh, it's the same thing. It means, what is it? So clearly it wasn't a food that they were familiar with at all from where they'd come from. Well, thanks to our resident Egyptologist in the um, parish here, Karen Sawada, whose family are here in the front row, um, I've been able to discover what the scholars think this manna might have been. And uh, in Exodus here, it's described as thin flakes of frost on the floor. Um, and this actually fits in with observations in Egypt, in exactly this place, of a kind of substance that would come falling to the ground from the heavens um, every evening. And it seems like, and people's faces screwed up when I said this this morning, the secretion of insects onto the branches of trees that interacts with, yes, that's the face, interacts with the gum of the tree and turns into this really quite nice flaky bread-like substance that actually is really, really tasty, especially when you're hungry, and falls to the ground at this period of time when the Israelites would have been there. So there's a possible natural explanation of this kind of food. But of course, as I said, the timing of the provision, the amount provided, that's the work of God. The natural realm is being used miraculously by God to provide for his people. The provision of the quail is even easier to accept because we know a lot about the migration of birds between Europe and Africa. Just floods and floods, flocks and flocks of birds coming across that period, getting to this desert period, desert area, feeling very tired after the migration, looking for a little relax in the desert under a bush and being incredibly tired and easy to grab hold of and take away and cook for your own food. I do feel sorry for the quail, but they were provided en masse to this area of the desert. Um, so again, easy to explain why that would have made sense in a physical uh, reality um, and is, is miraculous as provision but also has a natural explanation. So God provides just as much as the Israelites need. They need to trust him, do as he requires. Don't take too much, he says. It'll rot overnight. Just be content with what I've given you. Um, just take what you need. The lesson for us, surely, from that is that contentment, confidence in God's provision, is the way to go, along with obedience to what he asks from us. God will provide. He always has. He can do it through natural means. He can do it through supernatural means. We just need to trust and obey. Which brings me to the issue of the Sabbath, which is only mentioned briefly in this first half of the chapter and then expanded on the second half of the chapter we didn't read tonight. You might want to read further on um, tonight when you go home. But this is very interesting because although it's said here that you should only work six days so you can rest on the seventh, the instructions, the law that's given to the nation of Israel that we think of as the Ten Commandments isn't given until four chapters after this, Exodus chapter 20. So clearly the Israelites are already living according to these laws that Moses has given them. Um, it's already the way that they're conducting their lives. And in fact now, having just escaped from Egypt, they had a chance to live like Israelites again, to worship their God the way they wanted to worship their God again. Because in Egypt, again, according to Karen's scholars, they had a 10-day week. They worked for eight, they had two days off. That's probably why they got so much done, building pyramids and so forth. They had eight days of work. But now, having escaped from Egypt, under the bondage of that nation, the Israelites could live 
in worship of their own God now with a seven-day week, six days of work, one day of rest, because that's how their God created the universe, six days of labour. Such pleasure in that creation, there was a day of rest to enjoy it and marvel at it and wonder at it and realise that work is not everything that life is about. And so the Israelites here have a chance to revive their religion by working six days and resting one. He's commanding them, in fact, to remember his way of living now that they have their freedom and value their day of rest. It's just another way of surrendering control and recognising it's God's world, God's way, you need to trust and obey. So isn't God good here? He, he provides excellent food and he also insists on rest and enjoyment of that, that creation. He really does provide a, a way of freedom. Now, of course, for Christians, this story, this seminal story of God's provision for the ancient Israelites becomes a very important metaphor, symbol, figure for the provision that goes beyond our stomachs, beyond our physical weary bodies. The image of God providing spiritual bread is picked up in lots of different ways in the rest of the Bible. And so just a little bit after Exodus in the book of Je uh, Deuteronomy, Moses reminds the people again, after they've received the law, that uh, this was the event that took place. Remember in the wilderness, we've been given food here, but man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of the Lord. And Jesus picks up those words himself when he's in a wilderness at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel outside of Jerusalem, tempted by the devil. The devil says to Jesus, you're hungry, you're here in the wilderness. You could turn these stones into bread, couldn't you? And Jesus rebukes him with the words of scripture from Deuteronomy, saying, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Well, in our passage we read in Matthew, and then in the parallel passage in the Gospel of John that tells the same story, about the five loaves and the two fish, Jesus makes a lot of this wilderness story, the provision of the manna, to help us understand who he is. You might want to come over just briefly to John chapter 6, if you're a Bible flicker, don't worry if you're not, I'll read a little bit out. It's the same story that we had read in Matthew, but it just tells us a little bit more about the bread. Um, Jesus has just done this miracle of feeding the 5,000, and then he retires across the lake, and his, his followers eventually come to him, and they say to him, wow, you did this incredible miracle. And in verse, uh, verse 28 of John 6 there, he asked them, well, they asked Jesus, what do we need to do now? What, what do we need to do to please God? What are the works that God requires from us? And Jesus answers, verse 29, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they say to him, well, okay, what miraculous sign will you give that we may believe, believe you? What will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert, as it's written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And I imagine Jesus at this point making this kind of symbol, putting his finger to his head and going, mm, I just showed you <laughs> that I can do these things as well. I am just as powerful. I am like the manna in the wilderness. But he politely, in verse 32, says to them, I tell you the truth, it's not Moses who's given you the bread from heaven, but it's my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They're still a little thick in verse 34. Sir, from now on, give us this bread. And then in verse 35, Jesus declares, I am the bread of life. 
come to me, you won't be hungry, you won't be thirsty, it's me. He makes it profoundly clear to them that the meaning of the miracle back in Egypt is actually related to understanding who he is now. He is the provision from heaven. He is the one who will provide sustenance, the one who embodies what it's like to follow God, to, to trust and obey, and ultimately in his sacrifice on the cross for our sins and his resurrection to new life, to show us the pathway to true life. The bigger miracle is that God provided this miraculous means of our spiritual salvation, not just rescue from the hungers and terrors of the desert, the wilderness, but spiritual salvation, rescue from sin, rescue from judgment. We just need to trust and obey. Not to grumble, to enjoy God's provision and be thankful. Not to be disobedient, because the instructions are clear as to how to follow him. And not to forget, because we're given scripture to remind us of who God is and how he's fulfilled his plans in Jesus. Well, the famous uh, Christian philosopher Francis Schaeffer, towards the end of his life, he was being treated for cancer at the Mayo Clinic in the, in the United States. And he wrote to one of his friends in a letter, and this is what he said. He said, how good it is to have a theology in which there's no tension between using the best medicine possible and looking directly to the Lord for the answer to prayer. I like what Schaefer is seeing here, that God both provides physical marvels and spiritual marvels, and we enjoy both. We have the best of both worlds available to us. A belief in a God who provides in his creation through science, through medicine, through human endeavour, and sometimes through miracles. He provides all that we need. And then he provides Jesus, the man from heaven, the manna from heaven. And in him, all we need for salvation in this life and in the world to come. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.